Welcome to uh, session seven of our study of uh, apostolic church structure for end time revival and harvest or uh, the revelation of the care ministry. In the uh, last session, we, we talked extensively about the comparison between the ministry of John the Baptist, who was a forerunner, and the ministry of Jesus, wh whose ministry was the ministry that was to come the one who was to come to be our example of ministry, that he wanted us to be able to do what he did. Uh, as further demonstration of that, as we move into Lesson 7, uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 through 20, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of, of reconciliation. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He is the mediator between God and man. There's only one mediator between God and man. But he has given to the church, individually and collectively, the ministry of reconciling man to him. To it, verse 19, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world in himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That's our ministry. That's our pur purpose, our goal. is to reconcile the world to him. And he's given us the word to be able to do that. And then he makes this statement, which is an amazing, amazing statement. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, and the Greek word there translated stead means place, in Christ's place, be ye reconciled to God. We talked about the last session that Jesus talked about that it was expedient for him to go away so that the comfort would come. And the reason that was the case, because he just said in John 14, 12, that he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. I'm going to my Father so the Comforter can come. The Comforter's going to come in you, and when the Comforter comes in you, you'll be able to do everything that I've done on the earth here except be the Savior. But you will be the expression of the Savior. And I as the Savior will be in you, and I will be working through you. And Paul confirms all of this when he says that, that God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. He's also given us the word, the rhema of reconciliation, and that we are his ambassadors, and that we should, and that he is beseeching you by us. And we're praying you, we're appealing to you in Christ's dead. It didn't say we pray for you in Christ's dead. We pray you, or in other words, we appeal to you, we, we petition you. We beseech you in Christ's place, and this is what we're beseeching them, be ye reconciled to God. This is, this is the church's ministry. This is the body of Christ's ministry. This is the ministry that's necessary in the end time church. That's what we're going to talk about in this lesson. The necessity of the care ministry in the end time church. In the very first session we did, I told you a little bit about the history of our church. How that we started on September the 12th, 1970 with just the two of us, my wife and I. We had no one here. There was no one here waiting on us, no one here to help us. Every single person that attended our church, we essentially had to uh, dig out of the uh, uh, world of sin. Uh, we had a few people occasionally that would come in and, and move here for a while and leave or whatever, but... All of our church and all of our four foundation people, our core people, all the people involved in ministry were people who were saved here. And, and, and we, had, we had to do all of that. But then in, uh, in uh, starting in January of 1980, uh, it was a wonderful thing that happened. We, we had two years of harvest where in 1980 we prayed through 551. In 1981 we prayed through 1,034 right here in our building. In our, in our church, in our church services, uh, in revivals and regular church services. And needless to say, the structure we were using of a church, uh, the preacher doing most everything from the pulpit 
and uh, we had uh, we did uh, in 1981. Brother Cornwell came, and we did start doing home Bible studies during that period of time. But that was about it, and we found out very quickly that when you have an apostolic revival of apostolic proportions, that uh, traditional church structure, including and especially traditional Pentecostal church structure, can't take care of that number of people. Now you can preach from a pulpit and need nobody else. If you're going to have a little static group out there, static number group, static static size group, and they're going to support you well, and they'll 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 do the things that are necessary to do to function as a, an institution or a corporate body. But you cannot grow and have an impact on your city and it be done from a pulpit by a single voice, single individual. But I didn't know all of that then. In 1983 uh, or 1982, after those two years of revival. The Lord began to work in my life. It completely changed my whole concept of ministry. And that's when he gave me the revelation of what we call the care of ministry. I didn't know anybody else in the whole world was doing it at the time. I honestly didn't. Uh, I remember after the Lord showed me all of this in the scripture, uh, I was in the Christian bookstore one day and it was a thought just crossed my mind. I wonder if there's anybody else that's ever seen any of this. Well, I was walking, and, and, and you know how at the end of rows they'll put a small bookshelf? Well, there was one that was about two feet wide, and it had about four shelves, and it was full, full of books on small group ministry. Well, I was angry, not because my place and fame in the sun, place in the sun and my fame was, was gone, because I thought, I, I forgive me, but I thought, no, I'd never heard this before, and I'd never read it before, and I found it in the Bible for myself, and I didn't know anybody else that was involved with it. I didn't know anybody else. And so uh, to find out that all these churches had come up with this apostolic revelation, and the apostolics mostly didn't know it. There were, there were very, 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 I did find out later, there were a couple of our churches, notably Brother Haney's, and I, didn't, I was not aware of that when God showed this to me, that there were a couple of our churches that were doing stuff like this, but most of our churches, they call this charismatic. They branded me charismatic for preaching, and I was just preaching the Bible. But I, I, I realized, or God showed me, that this was the core foundational ministry and structure for a local church to take care of a large revival. Because the church, met public, they met publicly and from house to house. The Bible clearly says that in both Acts 2.42 and Acts 2.46. They clearly did both of those things. And both of those ministries were very needed for the early church to do what it was supposed to do. They, just, they didn't just have a public ministry. They went from house to house. Well, I was I, up to that point in time, that was 1982, uh, I was born in 46 and been in the Pentecost all my life. I'd never been a part of a church that had anything close to that. In fact, our church up to that point in time and also all the churches I'd been a part of, all the church calendar, all the church activities were all centered around a building, a church building. Well, as I began to study, I found out that wasn't Bible. Not that it's wrong to have a building and have a church calendar and church structure and all of that, but we weren't going out in the world. We weren't reaching the world. And so let, let, me, let me share with you uh, so, some thoughts and ideas from the Scripture and also from other sources that tell us of the necessity of the care ministry in the end-time church. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people received the Holy Ghost in one day. 120 in the morning, 3,000 more in the afternoon. Did God have a plan? Did disciples know of a plan for, for caring for the results of the day of Pentecost? Did the Lord give them 3,000 people knowing that they had no ability to do anything with them? I don't believe that. Who cared for the 3,000 souls that were saved on the day of Pentecost? If only the 12 apostles cared for them, each of the 12 had immediately 250 people to take care of as a result of that one day alone. Each of the twelve would have had to have taken care of one group of 250 immediately. 
by themselves if that was the case. But what if all 120 disciples, again, a disciple, as we said several times in these series, is a taught or trained one. What if all 120 disciples, people that were mature Christians, fruitful Christians, ready for ministry, fully equipped for ministry, what if each one of them were involved, and I have no doubt they were, and they were involved in taking care of them, then each of them would have only had 25 people to have taken care of. Now, that's still a lot in that context. But it's a whole lot more possible to do for one person to take care of 25 than it is for one person to take care of 250. I'm not making a hard and fast doctrine out of this. But Jesus talked about the shepherd that had one sheep that was lost and he left the 90 and 9. There is a functional limitation on how many people one person can know well and minister to and care for outside of a pulpit. There is a functional limitation. It is not possible to have an intimate relationship where you know people and, you, and you're, you're there for them and you care for them when you reach a, when one individual is ministering to a group that reaches a certain level, it's not. It's just not possible. What if Jesus was really saying that's about the limit? Is that why? To the United Pentecostal Church in my lifetime, a hundred people is a large church, because the structure of that church is a single person doing all the ministry, most of it from a pulpit and from endless counseling sessions. And that's and the very that very structure limits the church because that's the most they can take care of. Is that possible? I not only believe it's possible, I believe it's highly probable that that's the case. That it's not our faith that's limiting our growth. That it's not our prayer that's limiting our growth. It's not our 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 belief in the promises of God that's limiting our growth. Maybe it's not even our personal ministry that's limiting the growth. What if it's our church structure that's limiting our growth? What if that's what it is? What if that's what it is? The Lord promised that He would restore the church, today's church, to its full apostolic power in the last days. Let's read Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be, be blotted out. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the, whom the heaven must receive until the times of the restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. This power must have, have a conduit to flow through it to be affected. A river is so beneficial to the area that it flows through as long as it stays in its banks. But when that river breaks out of its banks, what was a blessing becomes a curse. Ministry must have a conduit to flow through. There has to be a structure. There has to be an apostolic structure. People... People can't just be released to just go do whatever with no accountability, no training, no oversight. That's, that's negative for them. It's negative for the people that they may reach. This is not God's will. It's not God's plan. If we believe that there will be revival, we must prepare ourselves to be involved in it and to care for the results of it. If we believe we're going to have a baby, we've got to prepare for that baby to come home. We need a bassinet, a crib. We need a tub to bathe that little tub to bathe that baby in. We need a supply of diapers. We, we, we prepare. We get the room ready. We, we do things to prove that we believe we're going to have a baby. A church that believes it's going to have revival and harvest is a church that's preparing, making specific preparations to get ready to take care of those people. And there has to be enough vision of ministries that aren't enough, there's not any people for right now, 
to staff them, but there has to be discussion and some plans of ministries we would get involved in and we believe is the will of God for our church when we have the people to do it. So that when those people come in, they get saved, they get established, they get trained, and now they're ready to get put to work. They're not taking somebody else's place. That's not the purpose of praying people through, is to take somebody else's place in the ministry. The people we've already got that are helping, they've got their place. It's their place. We don't need to be looking for somebody better to take over for them. We need to have other ministries that can be available, even if it's the same type. If we have Sunday school classes, we need to have plans for having more Sunday school classes. If we have a bus, we need to have plans to have another, a second or a third bus. If, we've, uh, if, we've, if we're doing home Bible studies, we need to have plans for training people to teach more home Bible studies. If we're doing care ministry or small group ministry, we need to have plans how we can start more small groups so that these people can have a place of ministry. It's not enough for a person to come to learn to receive. The principle of the gospel is freely receive, freely give. If you help people to freely receive, but you don't make plans and preparation for them to freely give, you have made plans for them to fail, to become dissatisfied, and to eventually leave the church because they're unhappy. All this preparation is very important. Many churches are spending much time praying and fasting and asking God to give them a harvest. The problem is they wouldn't know what to do with the results of the harvest if it came. I was ministering overseas in a powerful church. And I was staying in this hotel that had a total glass front to it. It was right on the street in a busy shopping area. And I was sitting there waiting to be picked up, and I saw all these people walking by, thousands of people. And the Lord spoke to me. And when I got in the car, I said to the pastor, the Lord wants to know if he gave you a hundred-soul revival this weekend. He wants to know the name of the people who are trained to be greeters that could be immediately put on the handle of the crowd. He wants to know the names of the people who are trained to be altar workers that are ready to help in the altar. He wants to know the names of the people who are trained to be the care group leaders to take care of these people. He wants to know the names of the leaders of ministry that are ready to incorporate these people in the ministry. He wants to know all of that before he's going to bring that hundred in your door. And I said to this pastor, do you know those names? He said, no, I don't. Well, after I got through talking to him, I decided I needed to come home and ask the senior pastor of Antioch the same question. Because you can preach revival all you want. You can pray for revival all you want. You can believe for revival all you want. But what preparations are you making to take care of that revival? Jesus wasn't trying to build the church in the Gospels. Jesus was trying to prepare people for the structure that would take care of the harvest once the church was begun to be built on the day of Pentecost. He spent three and a half years finding and training and preparing disciples to be able to take care of what he was going to do. That was his faith. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. The word church is only found twice in all the four Gospels because the church wasn't in existence in the Gospels. So if he wasn't building the church in the Gospels, what was he doing? He was preparing for the church to start and grow. He was getting people ready for the ministry that would be necessary to take care of the people that were going to come in on that day. Now, I don't know how many of us will ever have 3,000 get the Holy Ghost in one day, but I can guarantee you this. Not one more than is prepared to take care of them. Not one more. The Lord is tired of birthing His babies and then being left on doorsteps because we're not ready for them. We don't know what to do with the results. Do you? Does your church have a plan and know what it would do if 25 visitors showed up this week and all got, got the Holy Ghost? Would that tax everybody? Would that run everybody ragged? Would, would you lose most of them before next week, not even having enough people to call them and contact them and go see them and get them in a Bible study or talk to them about a care group or even encourage them to come back to church, which is our normal plan? Are they in place? Are there people there? 
You, pastor, can't do all of that. What if 50 got the Holy Ghost this week? You're going to call all those people? You're going to track them all down? You're going to keep track of them? Can't be done. It can't be done. Oh, you might, be, you might do it for a week, two weeks, but you're not going to do it long term. You can't do it. You can't physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually do it long term. So who's the people in place? What's the plan in place? Who's been trained? What's the structure? How are you going to take care of these people? I'm talking to you about the necessity of the care ministry in the apostolic church today. One person's ministry per congregation cannot meet the needs of the harvest. The care ministry involves the whole harvest, the whole body, to take care of the whole harvest. Let's talk about, let's look and see if we can find this apostolic structure, this apostolic method, in, in anywhere in evidence in church history. There was a group called the Bohemian Brethren. Many of the historians I've read about, read, say that these were some of the most apostolic people in concept and ministry in the last 500 plus years uh, of the church's history. Uh, they used what, what I call the concept of the care ministry. Even um, then, churches had big cathedrals, and, and it was all church-centered. Uh, there was a pope, and it was all about the church, and the church was in control, and it all happened in buildings. But this group demonstrated their Protestant faith by focusing their ministry on homes. This group, the Bohemian Brethren, were later called the Moravians. Why are they significant? Because they became very missionary-minded uh, over the years and became very apostolic in their method of going out. And they went throughout the world and started these home groups. There was a man named John Wesley. He started the Holy Club along with his brother Charles and a man named George Whitfield at Oxford University when they were students. And... Uh, uh, John and uh, George Whitfield both became, became Anglican priests. Uh, Charles is noted for the songs he wrote. And uh, uh, in fact, John became, came to the colony of Georgia here in the United States. It was still a British colony at the time as an Anglican priest for a while. And he talks about in his biography uh, or, or in his autobiography about how he... Uh, you know, he, 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 was going, he went through the motions of this. He had no fullness in his life, etc. And when he, when he returned to England, he was invited to a home group, a Moravian home meeting on Aldersgate Street in London. And uh, he, in that meeting, experienced what he called a true personal conversion. He said, my heart was strangely warmed warmed my heart was strangely warmed and he he noted this as a an experience with god and a, a conversion experience with god which by interpolating that out he was saying that all these years as a, a member of his holy club and seeking god as a student at oxford and then his years as an anglican priest that he was not converted but he didn't just experience that from the moravians he learned the structure that he used for the people that ended up following his ministry. He learned to organize and train his converts from the Moravians. Not from the Anglican church, but from the Moravians. And this was the structure that he used to take care of his revival, his great revival. He formed what he called nurture cells for new converts that met in homes each week. And there was someone in the homes to help care for these people spiritually and to begin to teach them the, the basics and the elements of, of Christian doctrine. And then he would take these cells and they, he would cluster them into groups and he called these groups religious societies and they met publicly, uh, in, uh, weekly in public places. So he took care of new converts and nurture cells and he collected the cells up into 
weekly public services he called religious societies. And then the religious societies of a geographical area met together weekly as a church with a pastor. Well, he run, ran into problems with the Anglican church because both the nurser cells and the religious societies were not led by professional clergy. They were not led by, by people who were trained and licensed by the Anglican church. They were laity. And the Anglican church was upset with George Wesley, who was still, uh, John Wesley, who was still a, an Anglican priest at that time, officially. And they put him under pressure. And they, they gave him an ultimatum. He had to stop this or else. And he took the or else. He resigned his uh, priesthood from in the Anglican church. And uh, the, uh, the term that was placed upon them by their detractors when they, at the Holy Club at Oxford, they, were, they preached and espoused uh, seeking God and becoming uh, uh, devoted to God uh, by certain methods. And people called them Methodists because of how they promoted that. Well, that began to be the term, or began to be the term applied to John Wesley and his new found church because he was kicked out of the Anglican church. But again, here, here, here's the thing that's so critical about all of this. Uh, <laughs> George Whitfield, who was his friend, and a contemporary of Wesley, was actually considered historically and to be the greater preacher and revivalist. He preached to crowds of up to 80,000 people. I don't know how you do that without a microphone. I don't know how you do it, but they say he did. In fact, here uh, on one of his tours of America, uh, I believe in New Jersey, he was supposed to have preached to a crowd of 80,000 people. But he was a... A, 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 an awesome preacher who gathered huge crowds everywhere he went. People came to hear him preach. And he had tremendous results of conversion. But what church is Whitfield known for starting? Oh, he didn't start a church. Why? He didn't make disciples. So all of that great ministry, and there's nothing left of his ministry today. Nothing. Because he was not a disciple maker. Wesley, he preached to some large crowds. It'll be large to me, ten and 20,000 people. But never he was never as renowned as Wesley in his day, as, as Whitfield in his day. He was never as, as renowned as Whitfield. He was never considered as good a preacher as Whitfield. Never. But Wesley was a disciple maker. He founded what we know as the Methodist Church and the results of his work are, are with us even today. In fact, if you're sitting in a Pentecostal church today, one of the reasons you're sitting there is because of Wesley. Because the original Methodist movement preached the necessity of having a conversion experience. But in the uh, 1800s, because you couldn't, even if you were raised in the church, you were not allowed to be baptized in the church unless you had and professed to have a conversion experience. Many of the kids that were being raised in the church here in America were leaving the church because they weren't having a conversion experience and they weren't allowed to be baptized. So they were leaving the church. In order to address this situation, the Methodist church came up with what they called a halfway covenant. If you were raised in the church, even though you hadn't had a conversion experience, you were allowed to be baptized. Well, there was a significant part of the Methodist church that was opposed to this. They felt like it was a complete undermining of everything that Wesley had preached about the necessity of having a conversion experience. And so, over a period of time, they pulled out of the Methodist church and formed, in various different organizations by different names, what were called the Holiness Churches. 
and they were called the Holiness Movement in the 1800s. Well, how about this? The Holiness Churches were the core group of all those who first received the baptism of the Holy Ghost speaking with tongues in the early 1900s. And to that group that received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the Lord gave the revelation in 1912, 13, 14 of the oneness of God, baptism in Jesus' name, etc. So what does that mean? That means John Wesley and his ministry is actually in the roots of our movement. Those are our roots. So somewhere along the line, not only did the church leave the, the preaching of the necessity of a conversion experience, but they reverted from an apostolic concept and structure. It's not important what Wesley called them, nurture cells or religious societies. That's not what's important. What's important is the structure he was using was essentially identical to the structure that the apostolic church used in the first century, beginning at Jerusalem. It's essentially identical. So where in the world did the church, the apostolic church today, lose that which was clearly in our roots and revert to more of a Catholic structure? A few holy people who do everything with a single preacher, priest in the pulpit and everybody else showing up as the spectators in the crowd to give the offering, etc. Where, where did we come up with that at? We didn't get that out of the Bible. We sure didn't get it from John Wesley, who is in our, who is in our roots. The point I'm trying to make here is that both biblically and historically, home group, small group ministry is in our heritage. It's a, it should be in our doctrine and it's in our heritage. Because it's in the Bible and it's a part of our roots. The great Pentecostal revivals in South America during the 50s and 60s were only sustained and strengthened by the use of small group meetings. Let's look at another situation. The communist revolution took place in Russia around 1917. We know that Andrew Urshan had gone to Russia with the revelation of baptism in Jesus' name around 1915. Here in the United States, we got the revelation of baptism in Jesus' name about the same time. The problem was, not too long after the church, people getting baptized received the Holy Ghost in Russia, the communists came in and started trying to eliminate churches. And yet, there are Urshanites and others who believe that same doctrine that came from them over the last hundred plus years in Russia today how did they survive? Home groups. Home groups. In fact, it was the only way they could have church was in homes. And yet, without a church building, without fancy church buildings, without being able to sing boisterously, without having to have, being able to have choirs and music and loud preaching, the church not only endured, but by most accounts, prospered, flourished in Russia. Same thing's happening in China today. Almost all of the, the apostolic activity that goes on in China today is in home groups. Without that being the case, it wouldn't be happening. You can say, well, it's being limited. We're, we're, it's really being li It's not being limited. No, 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 no. In fact, I don't know that any human being on earth knows the full extent of how many apostolics there really are in Russia and in China today. Why? Here we are in the United States, and the apostolic movement's grown. It's splintered a lot. I don't know how much all of it can be truly considered apostolic today. Some of it's barely even apostolic in doctrine. A lot of people that used to be apostolic have left the preaching of Acts 2.38 and the oneness of God. So I don't know. 
But I will tell you this, there has not been significant growth, not truly significant growth in this country. Why? Because while in Russia, they had to use the home part of the apostolic structure, primarily the only part of the structure we've used is the public meeting part. If you have to give up one of those, and your motive is reaching the lost and seeing people saved and discipled, then you give up the public part, you don't give up the other. And my concern is in America today that God is so desperate for revival in America. If we won't and aren't going to voluntarily restore apostolic church structure so that He can give us a revival He wants us to have, I wonder if He will then, for some kind of revolution or upheaval in this country that will force us to go back to his plan. If you got a church building, you're limited by the size of it. You're limited by the amount of parking. And what's everybody trying to do? Fill up their building. Yeah, but a full building's a problem. Now, I've been in Korea and watched them pack people on the floor with no seats two and three times the number of people that you would could get in the same area here in America. The average American is not going to attend a church regularly, faithfully, that is full to over 80% of capacity. It's exciting temporarily, and people will do it for a while, but they will not do it long term. So, most churches have found that comfortable place where they're full, they're full, but they're not packed because people aren't going to put up with that. Americans aren't going to put up with it. So if you have a facility, and that's the whole focus of your ministry, then you're limited. Well, today's economy, I don't know how many people can afford to, to build. We can't. I don't know how many people can afford to build. So if you true, do have revival, you feel you're building up, it's overflowing, okay, so you can go to t- two church services. Well, how many church services are you going to go to? How many? You're going to go, you're going to start having a couple on Saturday night, and Five or six, seven on Sunday? Well, let me tell you something. You better be planning on multiple ministry there then because one person can't preach all those services. So if you're going to have to go to that anyway, why not go ahead and just go back, go to the Scripture, and do it the way they did in the Bible? I know many people have heard of Paul Yonggi Cho. I had never heard of him when God showed me this in the Scripture. But a few years after I began to teach and preach this. Somebody said, well, you're doing what Cho does. And I said, who? Cho. You, you know, you've heard of Cho. I said, no, I've never heard of Cho. Who is he? Well, he is a Pentecostal pastor, uh, non-apostolic Pentecostal pastor in Seoul, Korea. And he has a large church. Well, that was an understatement. He had a church of over 500,000 people. I decided... I heard about a conference they were having. I decided I just want to go see just how effective this structure would be. So myself and a couple other ministers went. And I sat and listened for a week. And they didn't tell me one thing I hadn't already found in Scripture. I didn't see one thing that I'd already found in Scripture. But what they did show me was just how big a church could get using this structure. They had had, uh, facilities, and I saw the facilities. I was in the facilities. They had an auditorium with seat 25,000. They had a basement auditorium with seat 5,000. They had a 13-story church office building. The entire ground floor of that office building would seat another 5,000. It was all open space. And then every floor, every one of those floors, had space for another uh, 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 1,000 to 1,500 people in an open common area on all those floors, the total amount of people they could have in their building, at their facilities at one time was 50,000. They had seven church services a Sunday. I watched that happen. I saw it happen. I saw how organized they were with it. Uh, most people came in by uh, bus or train uh, 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 or subway or whatever, some by taxi. They really didn't even have a parking lot. And, uh, and, and they would wait outside and... As soon as the church service was over, the ushers would move everybody out, and then they would drop the ropes, and everybody would fill that up, and then they'd have their church services. 
Reverend Cho only preached to the first service. The next six services came to that building, went through that service to watch a video replay of his Sunday morning message preached live in the very first service. Well, if you're doing the math, that's seven times 50. That's only 350,000 people. When I was there, he actually claimed they had 750,000 members and that they only allowed, if you'd been in the church more than two years, you were only allowed to come to one of those seven services one time a month. Just once a month were you allowed to come. Those services were primarily for the newer people. But what was his church? He had a very well organized, with all kind of levels of oversight, everything was a care, was care ministry. Everything was care ministry, or they called cell ministry. I saw it work with my own eyes. I saw what it could do. You say, well, they're not apostolic. No, but their structure was. And that's the sad thing. Here were people that were not apostolic, using an apostolic church structure, a biblical apostolic church structure, and they were flourishing, and yet apostolics that believe the truth of apostolic doctrine are using a traditional church structure and struggling. Now, something doesn't add up in that picture. Pastors have a major decision to make. Will they continue with ineffective traditional methods, or will they lead their churches into apostolic structure and revival? God establishes His concepts and principles by using the most adverse of circumstances and extreme challenges. The Holy Ghost, when we, when we receive the Holy Ghost, in order to demonstrate the power the Holy Ghost has in our lives, the Lord takes the most unruly member and tames it by the Holy Ghost from the very beginning of our walk with God. And you know what He's saying? This is what I can do in your life. I can take your most unruly member and have power over it. And James says, if a man can tame his tongue, he can tame his whole body. Well, a man can't tame his tongue, but the Holy Ghost can. So the Lord established his, his principle of the Holy Ghost's power and influence in the most extreme example by taking over the most unruly member. When the nation of Israel went into Egypt as 70, a 70-member 70 family, and according to who you read, they came out of Egypt Two to four, four to a half million people. They, they, were not a, they were not a people. They were slaves in, 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 in Egypt up until that point in time. They were slaves. They were not a nation. They had no government. They had no natural or religious structure. But when they came out of there, and then the Lord gave in Exodus 18, as we've taught earlier, gave to Moses the plan for taking care of all those people with captains of thousands, captains of hundreds, captains of fifties, captains of tens, and told, he, told Moses what his ministry was supposed to be, that he was supposed to be for the people of God, were to take their petitions to God, and he was supposed to teach them what, how they were supposed to, what they were supposed to believe, how they were supposed to walk or live, and then the work that they were supposed to do, and then put the people to work doing all of that. That was an apostolic structure. And when God wanted to show that his structure would work, he didn't use it in a home missions work. He took the largest example you could possibly imagine and instituted it there. He instituted it there. The early church grew to 10,000 plus, plus people in a very, very short amount of time. How in the world did the apostles take care of all of that? I mean, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 healing at the lame man at the gate beautiful, not counting the, the, the scripture says the Lord added to the church daily and then later it said the, multi, the disciples were being multiplied. And most of that was in the local area because they were still sticking around Jerusalem. And so it's safe to say that within a short amount of time there were easily 10,000 plus people in Jerusalem who were in the church. How did 12 guys take care of that? How did 120 people take care of that? There must have been a whole lot more people involved by then. How are we going to take part in, participate in, end-time worldwide apostolic revival and harvest to the extent the Word of God promises it, and yet do it with a single voice, single pulpit church using church building facilities? How are we going to do that? We can't do it. We can't do it. When God made the first man, 
he saw that Adam was incomplete. He said, I will make him and help meet for him. The man represents the father dimension of leadership, as we've said earlier in other sessions. The woman represents the mother dimension of leadership. The NIV calls the woman an helper suitable for him. The Living Bible says she was a helper suited to his needs. One modern scholar interprets it as a power equal to man. And if you're a husband, you can say amen to that. Uh, What was the purpose of all of that? Because mothers are equipped to take care of babies, not fathers. You can't take care of babies from a pulpit. You can't take care of babies from a discipleship class. Do there need to be discipleship classes? Yes. True discipleship classes where you take people that have been nurtured and established and founded by the mother dimension of leadership, home Bible studies, care ministry, and other uh, types of that ministry. And then the pastor and other pulpit type ministries, the five-fold giftings, began to equip those people in those discipleship classes. Not new convert classes, not new member classes, but discipleship classes where those people become trained and taught to be able to be involved in ministry. This is what the Lord desires for us today. Every pastor has needs that only the mother dimension leadership can fulfill for his church. Adam could not have even had children without Eve. If you can build a church from a pulpit, then Adam could have could have propagated the human race without Eve. Adam had to have Eve to be complete. The pastoral ministry or the five-fold ministry, the five-fold giftings, have to have the body of Christ, the saints, the mother dimension, in order for their ministry to be complete. If they're not involved, if they're not a part of it, the ministry is incomplete. And no matter how good a man is in a pulpit, he may build a crowd, but he'll have a hard time building a church. You can build a crowd, and the crowd will come, and they'll clap and applaud, slap you on the back, tell you how good you are. They'll put money in the plate, but you're not going to build the body of Christ. It can't be done. It cannot be done. I've said it before. My wife and I started with two of us. I didn't know any other way to do it was to have church. So as a home missions church with no people, we started four services a week, Thursday night, Saturday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night. I didn't know any other way to do it. So, but here was the problem. There weren't any people to come to church. So if I was going to have anybody to preach to in those services, there was nobody else to do the visitation but my wife and I. And she got pregnant that first year. Of course, that helped us get in some doors. Numerous times we'd be standing there and people that would have not given us the time of day saw her condition and said, come on in, honey, sit down, take, take, get off your feet for a little bit. You shouldn't be out here walking like this. We won some of those people. But the bottom line is, there wouldn't have been anybody to preach to if we hadn't gone out and got them. There was no way to announce the services and the service times and my wife played the organ and sang, and she's awesome, and was, is, and will be awesome. Powerfully anointed to do all that. But what good is her singing and playing and my preaching if no, no, nobody was there? And there was nobody to go get those people. So we went and got it. The problem was, it worked. We prayed a whole lot of people through. But in those early years, the only thing we knew to do to take care of those babies was to go out and encourage them, why aren't you coming to church? Come, come to church, come to church, come to church. And let me tell you what, that got exhausting. That wore, it wore us out. We couldn't do that for very long. Now the Lord was merciful, and some of the people got saved. We discipled them, not in the church services, one-on-one. We didn't even know what we were doing. We, we got together with them, we talked, not answer their questions. Whatever, and then they get involved in ministry, and I worked with them and trained them. It wasn't long till we had people that were bringing people. But I learned quickly: you could not build a church from a pulpit. I don't care who you are, and that's still true today. The sad thing is, so many of us have facilities 
and a group of people, and if we have special events or whatever, we can get a crowd. But the problem is we're afraid of offending the crowd, so we don't preach to them the gospel. Next thing you know, we're preaching to a crowd, not preaching about Jesus to find a church that's in the crowd. What are you going to do, pastor? How are you going to take, for, take care of these people? We've seen it in previous lessons that care ministry is in the scripture. The Bible calls the church a body, calls the church a building. Uh, all of these things about the church that in principle readily proves the church isn't a building and church services. You can't find that definition anywhere in the Bible. It's our definition today. A church is an institution whose primary function is the conducting of, per, of public worship services. That's our definition of church today. That definition of church is nowhere to be found in Scripture. It's not in there. And we may have church, and of course church is not a verb. We may have church, and we may build a crowd, we may build a group, but are we having revival and harvest? Are we seeing people become like Christ? Are we seeing people be involved in the mission of Christ? And seeing people saved? Every pastor must decide whether or not he will stay with tradition or implement the care ministry in his church. What are you going to do, pastor? Leaders? Saints? Your pastor wouldn't be showing this to you. Having you watch this, if he wasn't feeling this direction, what's going to be your response? Too much work. I don't have time. And you say, yes, pastor, I can see this. This is God. Let's do this. What's going to be your response? What's going to be your response? The Lord wants to know. We see the care ministry concept or whatever name you want to put on it and doctrine and church structure in the scripture. We see it in history. But the question is this, will we see it in your church before the end comes? Thank you for listening. I pray that by the grace of God you've been able to receive this and that the Lord is speaking to you about doing something about it in your local assembly. God bless you.